Dear Father, we praise your name, we thank you, and I publicly proclaim, Father, in front of all who are here, here tonight, that this is your church, you are building it, you have done marvelous things, and we are awed by all of what you are doing. And Father, every church has a start, perhaps a finish at some point. That is in your will as well. We don't control those things, Father. We just ask that you would make us equal to the task of ministering to the men and women that you put in our care for whatever period of time. And that this never be a work for ourselves, for our sake. That we don't build towers to our own names. That we don't make this about us. Father, I pray that we'll always have a heart in everything we do here. For as long as you give us opportunity, a heart, Father, to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. And that it would be his name exalted and his purpose served and his sheep fed and, Father, his will done. And, Father, tonight as we study, help us do all of those things better by what we learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have reached the point, as you know, where Israel has rejected Christ formally and officially as their Messiah. And as a result, Christ withdrew the offer of the kingdom from that generation of Israel in chapter 12. He pronounced judgment on them. He says in Luke 13, I leave your house to you desolate. And he's leaving earth soon, shortly after his crucifixion. And after that departure, he will not return to Israel again, he said, until they reverse that collective denial that they made in this chapter. So for 2,000 years now and counting, the world has been waiting Israel's change of heart so that the Lord may return to them so that the kingdom on earth may be set up, which is something we have a lot more to say about in future chapters. But for now, the question that we want to address tonight is what comes next? I mean, why doesn't the, the gospel of Matthew end at chapter 12? given what has transpired? And well, the answer is training. That is, Jesus now shifts his focus from persuading the masses of Israel to accept him as their Messiah to privately training disciples to carry on the kingdom program in his absence. So for the next 16 chapters of this book, Matthew shows us all that Jesus poured into these men in preparing them for the mission that we now share with them in the church. And this gives us a lot of opportunities as we move through the gospel to learn just as they learned. And that's why Jesus' training has been preserved here in the gospels. Because we are not seeing just a few men trained here, or women. We're seeing the whole church being prepared as well. Now, I don't want you to think this is just going to be dry, didactic training, though. Because along the way, there's a lot of humor, if you know where to look, in the gospels. Because these guys, the twelve and others around them, most of these guys didn't catch a clue about what was actually happening. They're they're always behind in the storyline. They don't understand that Jesus is going to depart the earth. He says he's leaving, and they're all like, we want to go with you. They didn't have a clue. They didn't understand that he wasn't setting up the kingdom. They would say, when are you coming into your kingdom? They didn't understand that he was going to die, of course. They didn't understand that he was going to be put on a cross. And all of that confusion will become opportunity for humor here and there as we walk through this. But look, despite that, this is a serious thing he's doing. This is serious business. He is preparing these men with an eye toward the souls that they're going to impact in their lives and in the hundreds and literally thousands of years that will follow. This is the start of something that Christ is preparing them for. So, friends, really, that's our purpose here, too. As we get into what we're going to study now in the next 16 chapters, you have just entered Discipleship 101. You have joined the school of disciples that were around Jesus, and you're going to learn 
the same things they learned. Now, you're not one of the 12. We're not going to print the word apostle on our business card and carry it around, right? But like all the disciples, we're called to learn, and we're called to apply what we learn. That's our admission as we go into the text, all right? So this is every bit our training program as much as it is theirs. Now let's go from there. And what Matthew does at the very end of 12, which I left for us from last week, is he introduces the second half of his gospel. And he uses a moment to do that. A moment that sets the tone for how Jesus' method of interacting with people is about to change. Remember I told you, you can draw a hard line in your Bible between Matthew 12 and Matthew 13. Everything he did before that is about to change for the second half. Verse 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, forever does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He is my brother and sister and mother. Well, let's set the scene here. This scene does not take place immediately after the circumstances of chapter 12. By cross-referencing Mark and Luke, you realize this happened a little later than that. But Matthew has elected to move this scene up in time and put it where he did at the end of 12 because it serves as such a perfect transition into the second half of his gospel. It captures Jesus' shifting priorities in a very visible way. Mark 3 tells us that at at the time this actually happened, it's a really interesting story, actually. Mark 3 says that as Jesus was returning home to visit his family in Capernaum, now remember we said earlier that he moved from Nazareth with his mother and his brothers to Capernaum and made that his new home as he started his earthly ministry. So for the time he ministered in the Galilee, Jesus' home city was Capernaum. That's where Mary lived. That's where his earthly brothers lived. And Mark 3 tells us that there was a moment in the time that Jesus walked in the galley that he was going home for dinner, to have a meal with these people. And as he comes, this is what we read in Mark chapter 3, Mark 3 verse 20. It says, And he came home, meaning to the place where Mary and his brothers lived, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people, meaning his family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now remember, that was the scene we just studied. So in generally the same period of time, Mark says that there's such a hubbub going on about him, and the people, and the crowds, and the religious leaders, and it's like a, a riot, like a circus. They're just trying to sit down and have a meal. You know, family evening dinner. And they can't even do that with Jesus without the circus showing up. And they say, He's lost his senses they say, you know, Jesus is, is gone nuts, Mom. We've got to do something about this. They conclude he's gone insane. Now, it's no surprise that his earthly brothers thought that. Because if you know the story in John chapter 7, it says there that not even his earthly brothers were believing in him. You know, they didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. At which point, men like Jude, who wrote the letter of Jude, James, who wrote the letter of James, those were his earthly brothers. Those are the guys in John 7 who don't believe in him. Those are the same guys who now want to have him committed. All right, that's Jude, that's James and others. But did you notice that Mary's in the group too? Does that surprise you a little bit? It it does, I think, at least in this sense. Now, we don't revere Mary, we don't deify Mary, obviously. Mary's just another sinning woman like anyone else. She just had the privilege to birth Jesus. No minor thing, mind you, but 
That doesn't make her anything more than you and I. It just makes her a servant of Christ like we are. But nonetheless, we remember she was told that Jesus would be someone special by the angel before she even gave birth. She saw him at the, at the manger get attended to by magis from the east, remember? And she, she kept those things in her heart and she pondered them, Luke said. So she's seen that her son is something different, right? Nevertheless, whatever she understood, and this is one of those moments you get a little insight into Mary, whatever she understood of Jesus' ministry, it had not prepared her for what she was witnessing now. She was not ready for this. She did not realize what her son was going to go do, at least at this level. And I know it's tempting to look down at Jesus' family a little bit here for not having more faith in him and you know, not knowing him better and so on. But look, don't we do similar things sometimes with other people? And what, by, by what I mean by that is when you encounter someone whose life has just been turned upside down by their encounter with Christ, you know the guy or gal I'm talking about, right? They usually come to faith as an adult. And they've had a rough life, maybe, and then they come to faith, and man, they get on fire for Jesus, don't they? And they just want to evangelize everyone, they want to go to every church service, they want to go to every Bible study, they just want to talk about Jesus. And when you see someone living like that, don't, you know, sometimes we wonder about that person just a little bit, don't we? Well, you know, we have our idea of what the proper response to Jesus is, the proper way to be a Christian, right? And then somebody's behavior falls outside those boundaries, in a, in a way that they just get so wrapped up in their faith, and you worry a little bit about them, right? You might think that person's a little strange, a little touched. Uh, you know, a little wor- you know, Sometimes you say worse, right? Has anybody in your family ever said that about you? Well, certainly there are people who have mental problems, and sometimes religious zealots need a little help dialing back on their passion. But, you know, there's another explanation for that whole situation where you feel uncomfortable by somebody else's passion for Christ. You know the other explanation for that, right? The problem may not be they're crazy. The problem may be that we're lazy. As our Christian walk, meaning we're lazy, right? Because here you got a person who's willing to be a fool for Christ, and they put everything on the line in that relationship. They'll move heaven and earth to serve Christ, and their life is totally upside down until they figure out what Jesus wants with their lives, and they've reoriented their life around that. Meanwhile, here we are, trying to fit Jesus neatly into our suburban, middle-class lifestyle. And yeah, we've all done this, right? We, we pursue Jesus in whatever ways we can, so long as we can still also pursue the nice house and the two cars and the 2.5 kids and the golf and whatever else we want to do. And look, those things are fine. But when that's our priority structure, and we rub elbows with these Jesus freaks, who they're willing to give up all that if Jesus asks them to, so that they can serve him with every ounce of effort, every day of their week, every, li- every moment of their life, until they die, man, you know, that's somebody we all look at and go, I don't know what happened to him, but somebody needs to help that person. You know what? I think that's what Mary said. I mean, in her own way... I think Mary looked at Jesus and said, Look, I know you've got something special. I know God has called you. I understand. The angel talked to me too. I was there. But look at this. This is not right. This is crazy. Jesus lived out his ministry so dramatically that it shocked everyone. The religious leaders, his friends, his brothers, his mother. And if we are his disciple, you know, you can't be afraid to live like that if that's your call in your life. If that's what Christ asks of you, you can't be afraid of that. Not everybody has the same call, but you can't be afraid of it. Because what fear will do, what worry will do, what embarrassment will do, what what inconvenience will do, is it will stand in the way of wonderful things. 
you just don't see them on this side. All you see is what you know. And you have to go past that to know what Christ is bringing into your life next. I mean, that's, that's the joy, the, the mystery of, of serving Christ, is you don't know what's around the corner, but you don't know until you look. So that's the situation here. you got Jesus' family, including his mother, who've come to take him away, but ironically, they can't even get close enough to do that to persuade him because the adoring crowds are so dense. They can't get in. So the crowd passes word. You know how this works, right? Tell him Jesus, tell Jesus' mother's here. And then that just moves its way through the crowd until someone close to Jesus says, hey, they're telling me that your mom and your brothers are outside wanting to talk to you. In verse 48, Jesus then responds saying, well, who are my mother and my brothers? Sure enough, I'm, I'm guarantee you somebody in the crowd said, yep, they're right, he's crazy. He doesn't even know his own parents anymore. But then Jesus points to the disciples that are standing right there in front of him and he says, behold, my mother and my brothers probably to a lady, probably to some men. And he says, these are the ones who do the will of my Father. That's what makes them my family. Now, obviously, we know that means he's speaking about a spiritual relationship because Jesus understood who his earthly family members were. That's not confusing him. But he says in verse 50, those who do the will of my Father are these who are related to me spiritually. Now, we need to understand what he's saying here. And we need to be careful on how we do that. What does it mean that those who do the will of his Father are his spiritual family. And the reason we need to get more specific here is because if you're not careful, it would suggest that works of one form or another are the means by which we establish a relationship, which we all know is not accurate. And that's certainly not what Jesus meant. If you look at Luke's account of this same scene in Luke 8, Luke reports this. These are the words that Luke writes. Luke 8, 21. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word and do it. Who hear the word of God and do it. So that's his further definition of this. Now that is not a general reference to obedience. In other words, he's not saying that you become a member of the family of God by doing things that you find written in the word of God. What he is saying is this. If you look throughout the New Testament, you're going to find that the New Testament writers often talk about the word obey as a reference to the gospel itself. You hear obeying the gospel is a phrase that Peter uses or that Paul uses. Obeying the gospel, obeying the word. A believer, in other words, is someone who obeys the call of the gospel as spoken by Christ in this case or as written in the word of God as we have it. And an unbeliever, by definition, is someone who disobeys the call of the gospel, the call to believe. Paul writes this in 2 Thessalonians 1.6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those, now listen, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. All right, so you see that those who do not obey the gospel. That's another way of saying don't believe. So in the context of Matthew 12, this makes perfect sense, because what just happened? Earlier in this chapter, Israel did not obey the call. They did not obey the word. They rejected Christ. They rejected the gospel. And so now Jesus turns to the crowds and to his unbelieving brothers and so, and he says to them, you know who my family are? My family are not family by blood. My family are not family by nationality. My family are those who hear what I'm saying, believe in me for what I've said, and become part of the family of God by faith. That's what he just said. But the crowds, and and even his mother, 
We're acting as if, well, just the earthly relationships we have are enough. They'll do. So when the family arrives, here's what the crowd was thinking. In a normal patriarchal culture, the Jewish crowd was assuming that when they told Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside, Jesus would have snapped to in respect of his family, in respect of honoring his parents, and he would have said to the crowd, part ye crowd, you know, Red Sea part, and then just call Jesus, call his mom and his brothers to him. And they, they would have had preference over all those people that have been standing around waiting, over all those needs that were in that room. Nonetheless, nope, family's first, come on in. Blood is thicker than water. Nope, that is not true. Look, we all have earthly families, right? You don't get here without one. I mean, it's impossible to exist physically on earth without parents. Even Jesus had earthly relatives because he was born of flesh, right? He was incarnate, although he didn't have an earthly father. But friends, blood relationships only last for as long as you live on this earth. And in death, those bonds are broken. At the moment you die, your relationships with parents, with siblings, even marriage relationships, they end forever. No hallelujahs if your spouse is in the room. (laughs) Only spiritual relationships transcend death. First and foremost, of course, it is the spiritual relationship that you have with Christ by your faith that brings you into glory after your death in the first place, right? That's the ultimate spiritual relationship. Nothing matters before that relationship. But along with your relationship with God through Christ... You also have spiritual relationships with every other believer. All right? And believers in Jesus then form a spiritual family, and that's a relationship that will last forever. I mean, if you've ever wondered why Christians sometimes, particularly in some denominational settings more so maybe than in others, if you've wondered why they walk around saying to each other, Hey, brother. Hey, sister. And if you've never got that before, here's where you get it. What they're saying is that in spiritual terms, you are my family member. I am your brother. You are my sister. Those relationships have been established by faith, and they will transcend death. That's why Jesus says that those who do the will of the Father are his brothers and sisters, because the Bible says we are his brethren. And brethren is sort of an old bible word for brothers. In Greek, it's literally the word for brother. The writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus and us. He says in Hebrews 2.10, It was fitting for Jesus, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. You know, he took on flesh, he became man for our sake, but in doing so, he literally became a brother of us, spiritually and physically, if you will. That's the family we now have by faith. So Jesus told the crowd in response to their statement, I I, I mean, these are my words, but he effectively said this. He said, I'm not so concerned about them. What I'm concerned about is my spiritual family. And now that would have shocked them, friends, because in a patriarchal culture, you don't do that. Parental authority was in high regard. Remember, their commandments included honor your father and mother, right? That is not something you just toss aside. So after they told Jesus his family wanted to see him, you know, they were fully expecting him to just jump to for their sake when he doesn't. I don't even know what they must have thought at that point. Look, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, then you have an eternal relationship with everyone else who's in this room who also shares in your faith. You have an eternal relationship. Think about how important that is. That community that I just described, those in here and anywhere else in the world, 
They are your eternal family. And may I submit to you that those relationships matter more now than your earthly ones. They're your earthly family. And they'll matter a whole lot more after you leave this earth because they're the only ones you will have. We need to invest ourselves in those spiritual relationships more than we invest ourselves in our earthly relationships by blood. Did I challenge you with that statement? Now, hopefully, your earthly relatives and your spiritual relatives are one and the same. That would be ideal. But if not, then if and when the two come into conflict, you need to prioritize the spiritual over the physical. That's especially true if those earthly relationships are impeding your obedience to God. And that's what's happening here for Jesus. If you doubt what I'm saying, look at his example in the pages in front of you. We know that Jesus' family was coming to see him. Do you remember why they're coming? What was the reason Mark told us they're there? They're there to commit Jesus, to put him away, to take him off the ministry field, to shut him down and shut him up. They think for his own good, but let's be honest, some of this is self-reflective, right? They're a little worried about how it reflects on them and on the whole family scene. They're there to stop Jesus' ministry. Now, is that a hard question for you if I ask you if that's a good thing or a bad thing? Do you have any doubts that that's the wrong thing for them to do? Have you ever had a family member that wants to shut you down a little bit when it comes to how actively you pursue Christ? How vocally you speak about the gospel? How readily you'd like to witness to them? You know, my wife and I have had moments in our experience as a married couple with uh, my parents particularly not being believing. And none of my siblings are. And, you know, we've made decisions along the path of our life that from an outside point of view, it's kind of strange decisions. You know, moving from lifestyles you know, that you might think are better than the one we have now because we wanted to live cheaper to be prepared for income that comes from ministry. Or you know, how we schooled our kids. Or you know, other decisions about how we lived our life. And you know, talking to my parents about it, it was like two ships passing in the night. They just didn't get it. And I think if they could have committed us, or at least tried to fix the problem. You know, that, that was the instinct, right? The instinct is, I know better than you how to live your life because what you're doing is wacky. But I think it's also convicting. And in those moments, you might feel as a Christian would, how do I honor my parents, Father? How do I honor my father and my mother as you call me to do? Well, look at Jesus' example here. And, I, and by that, I want you to see how he honored his mother even as he didn't let her interrupt his ministry. What if he had agreed to meet? What do you think the conversation would have been like? What would she have said? What would the brothers have said? Based on Mark, I don't think we have to guess, or at least not very much. They would have tried to persuade him to stop. In a very public moment, around a bunch of people, right? Come on, let's, let's go home, Jesus. No, look, you can't just keep doing this. This is crazy. Come on, look, just come with us. And What would Jesus have said to that? What do you think? Do you think he would have agreed? All right, now, is that a worse, more awkward, more dishonoring moment for Mary than to simply say, I'm not going to talk to her? You see what he did there? By deferring the whole thing, by moving away from the whole opportunity, he left her in the best possible position he could, given the situation she created, along with his brothers. But what he didn't do was let her get between him and his father's work. That's the criteria, friends. That's the the Bible's teaching, is that when push comes to shove and it's between what your earthly relationships want and what your spiritual obligations are, there's no contest. There's no contest. Just do it as honoringly as you can, but it doesn't mean that you're going to sacrifice God for family. It's the other way around if it has to be that way. 
When you face these struggles, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to prioritize your relationship with the Lord over those other relationships. And yes, find ways to honor your parents. Find ways to be at peace with all men as long as it depends upon you. But do not let those relationships cause you to disobey the Lord you're going to serve into eternity. And also, I should add, knowing what we're learning here, you have to make the priority out of converting as many of those earthly family members as you can into spiritual relationships because that's the ultimate solution here, right? And that outcome is not in our hands. We know the Lord is obviously the one who's going to decide the outcome. But making an effort is in our hands. Making an opportunity is in our hands. You make the effort because you don't know if the Lord's going to use it or not. And if He does, those earthly relationships now will become spiritual relationships that last in eternity. And even now, they'll become richer and more meaningful. But there's another implication I want us to cover before we move on. And this is the one I assure you, you rarely if ever think about, because I rarely think about it unless I consciously try. And this is what I'm talking about. If your spiritual relationships persist into eternity, and again, I'm talking about the brothers and sisters you have in the Lord that are in this room with you right now. These are permanent, eternal relationships in a family that will live on forever. Have you considered that your fellow believers in the body of Christ generally are going to be the ones you work with there? You're going to see them on the streets of the kingdom? I mean, I'm not talking euphemistically. I'm talking literally. They're going to walk. You're going to walk. It's going to be a real place. You're going to pass each other on the street. Let me ask you this. How are you approaching those relationships now? Are you dealing with them, having eyes for eternity, knowing you're going to see them for a long time, not wanting that moment in the hall, that moment on the street in the kingdom to be awkward? I remember what you did to me in church. I remember the kind of person you were in real life. All that secret sin that we know all about now. Remember? Nothing will be hidden. Nothing will be kept secret. You know, that's the thing. We tell ourselves no one knows about our sin. Oh, God knows, but He forgives me. Everyone else is going to know too. Look, if you struggle in maintaining healthy relationships with your spiritual brothers and sisters, you need to make addressing that a priority. Because, friends, if you run from your struggles with other people in the body, if you church hop so that you can avoid reconciling or repenting or working with somebody, just remember, you cannot run forever. Sooner or later, you're going to stand together with them in glory, and all will be forgiven. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but not all will be forgotten. Our memories persist, and you want to enter into that place with a good testimony and good relationships that honor Christ. You know, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus teaches a parable about how we should handle our funds, our money, while we're on this earth. And at one point, he makes this statement. And just, I'm not going to talk about the money side of it. Listen to what he says, though, about the impact in the kingdom. In Luke 16, 9, he says this, Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of this world, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Do you hear what he just said? Jesus is saying... Why don't you think about making friends in the body with your funds? And that's a way of saying, devote your money to the needs of the body as much as you can. Let them see your generosity now. Let them feel your love now. So that, he says, they will remember how you treated them when they welcome you into the eternal realm. That teaching implies several things. Memory, assignment of personality and identity in the kingdom who you are now will know who you are then don't think you're going to hide under some new identity it's not the witness protection program it's the kingdom (laughs) 
But it also implies that there is this sense when we get there of who we were. And, and I don't know how all that's going to work. I'm not sure how memories fit with our knowledge that there'll be no pain and suffering and all the rest. I'm not saying I have it all worked out. I'm just reading what the Bible says. But what I am saying this is, you ought to consider how you treat each other now, because this isn't the end of it. This is just the start. When we raised our kids, one of the things my wife was so good about doing as she raised our kids in the home, was she made sure that they both loved each other. Because, you know, kids will have strife. They'll be moments. We all know that's normal, right? But she did not want her two kids to, to grow up with a relationship in which they hated each other. And, you know, you, you can't force things, but you can certainly craft things. And what she was really good about doing was, you know, if, if my daughter, who was the older, got a little aggressive with her brother when he was younger, maybe pushed him around or something, my wife would tell her, you know, one day he's going to be bigger than you. You know? Or if he was the one being the aggressor, she'd say, you know, when you get older, you're going to have to help protect your sister. You, know, you need to be thinking, nurturing that. Well, all I'm saying is this. If we do that within our earthly relationships, how much more should we be doing that with our spiritual relationships, right? And if you want to be a little more convicted, because I'm sure you're not enough already, why don't you consider this? Husbands, if you have a believing wife, she is your sister in the Lord. And long after you lose the authority of him of being the, the owner of the home and of the, the leader of the family and the one you think who can boss her around, if that's how you think it works, wait till you get to the kingdom. All right? You ought to think about that. Peter talks about treating her that way, knowing that you are fellow heirs. And that's his way of saying, remember, this relationship you have right now doesn't stay that way forever. One day you're there together as peers. You might want to think about how you're treating her in the meantime. And wives, if you have a believing husband, he's your brother in the Lord. Now, if you're unwilling to respect his authority in the role that he has now, how will he remember you later? I mean, these are things that will mitigate against having arrogance, being selfish, being inconsiderate of somebody else. I mean, it's the idea that this world moves into a next and there is an accounting of sorts there, even though our sin is forgiven, that we think about now so that we do the right thing now. How much better would the body of Christ be if we all worried about this? I mean, worry is the wrong word. Maybe paid attention to this might be the right way to say it. How much better would the relationships be, right? So Matthew has set the standard here by how he captures this story at this point. He says that as things move forward now in Jesus' ministry, here's his priority. From this point forward in his ministry, in the way Matthew records it, his priority is those who have faith. So everything he does now in the rest of Matthew's narrative will focus on his spiritual family only. And you see that play out immediately at the beginning of chapter 13. Just We're not going to go deep into 13. I just want to show you the shift. Look at verse 1. He says... That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him, so he got on a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, and then he goes into the first, we'll look at the parable next week. In fact, that's one of the things I love about Matthew 13, it's nothing but parables. If you like parables and the unpacking of parables, do I have a treat for you? We're going to have several weeks of parables in Matthew 13. But that is the point for today. That is, chapter 13 begins with a parable. And the fact that Jesus teaches a parable is groundbreaking for this gospel. You may just take that for granted because everybody knows Jesus taught parables and most of us love those, right? It's a big part of what we know the gospels have and we just take it for granted. 
But do you understand that there have been not a single parable in this gospel till this point? None. This is where, and conversely, do you understand that after Matthew 13, it's nothing but parables? He doesn't teach publicly in any other way. You can't get more dramatic than that. In fact, if you've ever wondered why Jesus taught in parables at all, why obscure the truth in that way? Why make it a puzzle? Well, you're not alone. Glance down in chapter 13. Glance down to verse 10 for a second. Again, we'll cover the parable next week, but I want you to notice, look at what the disciples say. They notice this abrupt change in his teaching style, and they're confused by it. And they ask him, what is up with all the parables, Jesus? Where is this coming from? We'll talk about more of that next week, but you need to understand, this is new here. It's completely out of the blue. He's never done it before, but it reflects his new priority. What is his new priority? He is no longer teaching openly. He is no longer presenting himself to the crowds. Why? We just studied it. Israel has committed the unforgivable sin as a nation. Remember, that's a national sin. You can't individually commit it. It's only committable by the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel collectively rejected their Jesus when he came to them. That's the unforgivable sin. So that generation of Israel gets no second chance for the kingdom. It's not going to come in their lifetime. It's still waiting even till today. That's what they had lost. So it makes no sense anymore for Jesus to campaign, as it were, openly, going out throughout the Galilee saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, believe in me. They can't receive it even if he said that. It's been taken off the table. So instead, he only teaches now to those who have the spiritual insight to receive it, and that's limited to those who have faith. And have the teaching by faith of the Holy Spirit. And so only those who are going to understand what he says and put it to use in the kingdom program are being allowed to know anything. He only teaches his disciples in private. If he's in a public setting, you'll see this now with me from now on in the gospel. If he's in a public moment addressing crowds, it's parable, 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 parable. Then, of course, his disciples are clueless, so they would always take him aside somewhere after it and say, well, what was all that about? We didn't really follow that first part. Or really any part. We just kind of get... Can you explain that to us, Jesus? And so he teaches them privately. And that's when you'll get the explanations. The explanations of a parable will come when he's privately talking with just his disciples. So it's a way of saying he taught in code. He starts speaking in code for people he's, that God has elected to receive it. That's the first change that's going to happen. The second change is Jesus only performs healing miracles at this point... For those who demonstrate faith first. Now you may not have noticed in Matthew's gospel up to this point, but let me just remind you of things we've been watching happen. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, there has been no prerequisite by Jesus on anyone if they wanted healing. Let me just read you little snippets. I'm just going to jump quickly. Just listen. Matthew 4.24. The news spread about him throughout all Syria. They brought to him all who were ill, those suffering from various diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew eight sixteen. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were ill. Matthew nine thirty five. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Matthew twelve fifteen. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. All we've seen in the first half of this book is Jesus healing literally everyone who comes everywhere he goes. Why is he doing that? Well, it was fundamentally to draw an audience. 
Yes, there was a, a, an element here of, of simply mercy. And that's, that's not to be discounted. But what I'm saying is, in his purpose of ministry, it's fundamentally about bringing people to him to hear the message of the kingdom. All right, well, now Israel's rejected him. There's no need to draw a crowd anymore. He's only ministering to his sheep. So he stops with the mass healings. He will always test someone first, and we'll see this as we move through the rest of this gospel. He'll ask them a question. He'll look for the faith that he wants to see. When he finds it, he heals them. Third thing that's going to change, Jesus no longer will openly declare the kingdom. He no longer goes around saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember that phrase? You won't see it again. It's done. That's not necessary, because it's not at hand. It's not on the table anymore. There is no such thing. Scan down to verse 11 of chapter 13. Notice Jesus says that only his disciples are appointed to understand the future kingdom. Not for them, not for the crowds anymore, only for those who are of faith. Because friends, if you're not of faith, you have no part in the kingdom program. Remember, the kingdom program is about recruiting citizens to enter the kingdom when it appears. And that is a program of work for disciples only. No need for the crowds to hear about it. Fourth, Next to last, and we're almost done. Fourthly, Jesus, in the new way of working, is going to stop encouraging his disciples to share the news of himself. You remember in the first half of this gospel, he would, he would tell people to spread the news. He even had that moment when he equipped the disciples with spiritual power to go out healing, and he sent them out, sent out 70 at one point and 12 at another point. And as they went out, they healed people, and they, they, he says, as you go, declare the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember? Well, that's done. We're done with that. From now on, every time he heals someone or he reveals himself to someone, what's the next thing he says? We saw it happen already at the very end of 12. Tell no one. Do not tell anyone. That's, and you ever wondered about that? You ever thought, man, that doesn't feel like the gospel, right? Shouldn't he want people to know? Well, in the larger sense, yes, that's not what Jesus wants. But in the, in the specific sense of where he was in his program of ministry, from where he was in chapter 12, or end of 12, to when he goes to the cross, there's no need for mass evangelism. There's no one in Israel to receive it. It's not going to happen in that way. It's going to happen through the church. And the church is going to do it in a whole new style, a program. And so he tells the the Jews of Israel, you don't need to spread this news, keep it quiet. Because any news spreading of him at that point can only accelerate his walk to the cross, which is not according to his purpose at that stage. And then finally, the last thing that's going to change as a result of Israel's rejection. And Matthew alludes to this in chapter 12. And that is that the time had come for the kingdom to move beyond Israel and to go to Gentiles. That's the new shift. Now I want you to notice this. If you go back and look through the gospel that we've studied so far, you'll see this. That before his rejection, Jesus only ministered to Israel. He never ministered, broadly speaking, to the Gentile communities, even those that were in Israel at the time. And he only taught Israel. You remember when I said a moment ago, he sends his disciples out to go minister in his name with spiritual power? Do you remember the instructions he gave them? In Matthew 10.5, this is what he said. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the gospel is for the Jew first, and then the Gentile. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus says in John 4. And in fact, in the last days, when we, when we get to the point of tribulation, the terrible time that's coming to end this age, when the church will have been removed from the earth prior to that moment, 
God begins another work of evangelism in those last days. He doesn't stop reaching out to the world. But do you remember, for those who've studied this section of the Bible, uh, do you remember how he initiates that new work of evangelism at the very end? He starts with a very unique number of men, 144,000, the Bible says. And do you remember what kind of people they are according to Revelation 7? They are Jews. Because salvation is of the Jews. Once again, it will not go to a Gentile before it's gone to the Jewish people. Alright, so before 12, it was only Israel. But after 12, it starts to increasingly become a message for the world. And of course, the church itself is directed largely to the Gentiles. So that's our takeaway from seeing this end of 12, the beginning of 13. But I want to leave you with one final takeaway tonight. One more relevant takeaway. If you read and you understand the gospel as we do, and you've reached the end of 12, and you see this big change happening, if you sit back for a moment and ask yourself, what does that mean to me, to know that God moved in this way? What's the relevance to me today? Well, let me tell you what it does for me. When I see this, when I understand this stuff in Scripture, you know how it hits me? I get this overwhelming confidence in God's sovereignty. I'm just, I'm just amazed that he has this whole thing figured out like this. That, that it's to this degree. I mean, Matthew showed us back in chapter 12, at the outset of 12. Remember he quotes from Isaiah? And he sort of prepares us from Old Testament scriptures for what's about to happen in that chapter? And as he quotes from Isaiah, he quotes passages that foretold Israel's rejection of their Lord. And foretold God's movement outward to the Gentiles as a result. You remember we looked at that? And of course, if you study that topic, there's a lot of scripture in the Old Testament that talks about that. That God was foreknowing and pre-planning his own people's rejection so that he could keep his promise to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, all nations could be blessed, not just one. And he told us that in advance through the prophets so that we would know nothing that's happening here is a surprise. I like to say it this way. With God, there is no plan B. Everything that happens is part of plan A. It's exactly as he intended. And if I see it written large like this, on the scale of history, on the scale of nations, you know what that reminds me? That I can take encouragement whenever I face a day of struggle or a trial in my life, because I can certainly trust God to handle my problems if he's got that level of control over what happens among millions of people. You see how the logic works there? Right? He cannot control the end of anything unless he is also in control of the means to the end. You know, people talk about God knows how the end is going to turn out. Yes, he does. But it's different. It's bigger than that. Do you realize the end always works out exactly the way he wants it to? It's not just that he knew how it was going to happen. He's controlling it to make it happen. There's no other way around it. So knowing that, Nothing is taking God by surprise, even as it takes me by surprise. And I, I'm not saying that's the topic of Matthew 12 or 13. What I'm saying is, understanding these things might feel a little academic or a little, I don't know, seminarian. Like, you know, see, that's not really going to help me at work tomorrow. Well, think about it a little more deeply. If God is controlling the world at that level, He knows what tomorrow has in store for you. He's planned it. And you need to understand that Jesus has things planned in your life that are bad for you in the way we feel they work. Because if life was nothing but roses and sunshine till you drop off the end of the earth whenever that day comes, you will not grow. You will not be different. That is license to stay the way you are. Right? When things are going fine, what's the motivation to change? Nothing. So the Lord, at times... In his own way, lovingly, inserts little you know, sand in your oyster 
so that it can become the pearl it needs to in time. But here's the key to that, and this is where we end. If you don't understand that He works this way, if you're not thinking big about God and about what He does in life, then when the little trials come, all you do is complain and worry and try to fix them and lose the benefit of them. And when you don't learn the lessons that these things were intended to teach you, do you know what happens? You get to do them again. I mean, whatever new way God invents, but you're going to do it again because His love for you is such that He does not want you to end up at your judgment moment having missed any opportunity to become more Christ-like. And in doing that, He does it by giving you opportunity to come into contact with what makes you less than Christ so that in those moments you can learn to do better. That's the God who loves you. And you learn from Scripture how big He is so that you can learn to trust Him in the small things of your everyday life. That's why we study the Bible this way. It's not so that we get nice and you know, full of ourselves up here. It's so that we get full here. I hope that's what you're finding as you understand these things. Praise Him for the trials. Praise Him for the suffering. Praise Him for the disappointments. Because when you do, here's what you're praising Him for, whether you know it or not. You're praising Him for the good things that will eventually come in your life because of those things. Even things you won't even know what they are until you get to heaven. So that's ultimate trust when you praise God for a trial. You're praising Him for things you don't even understand yet. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that we've had the chance to study your word at this level, understand it in the way that we do. But Father, what we understand more than anything is your love for us, your sovereign will and power over the world you created. And we're awe-inspired, Father, that those two things happen at the same time. That a God who could make all things and control all things is still, Father, mindful of men and women like us. That is a true blessing beyond our understanding. Lord, take what we learn in this little place, magnify it in our hearts, and then give us the courage to share what we learn with others so that others may know the joy we have in our relationship by faith in Jesus Christ. Father, bless this church and all who are in it. Send them out, Father, in your name and bring them back in your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.